Welcome, everyone. It's exciting to see such a full house uh, for this wonderful day and this wonderful event. Tomorrow is the anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's birthday, called around these parts, Founders Day. Uh, and on Founders Day, the University of Virginia and the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello jointly present the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medals to recognize achievements of those who embrace endeavors in which Jefferson excelled and which he held in high regard. Those medals are the highest external honors bestowed by the University of Virginia, which grants no honorary degrees. For Founders Day tomorrow, the Honorable Frank H. Easterbrook will become the 2018 recipient of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. It is my honor to introduce him to you today, and it is to my benefit and the benefit of all of us here that he will speak to us on the Supreme Court and business litigation. A distinguished jurist, teacher, and scholar, Judge Easterbrook has served on the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit for over 30 years. From 2006 until 2013, he served as Chief Judge of the Circuit. One of our nation's most prominent legal scholars, Judge Easterbrook was born and raised in Eastern New York. He attended Swarthmore College where he earned his BA in Economics and Political Science with high honors in 1970 and was also elected Phi Beta Kappa. In 1973, he earned his JD from the University of Chicago Law School, where he was elected to the Order of the Coif. As a student, he served on the University of Chicago Law Review and did so with distinction. He received the Jerome and Frank Prize for the best student writing in the Law Review, and that award was clearly a herald of the superlative writing for which Judge Easterbrook has become famous over the course of his career. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Following graduation, Judge Easterbrook served as a law clerk to the Honorable Levin H. Campbell of the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. He then joined the United States Department of Justice, where he was the youngest person ever to serve as, the assist as an assistant to the Solicitor General. Within four years, he was promoted to the rank of Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. While in the office of the Solicitor General, Judge Easterbrook argued 17 cases before the United States Supreme Court, including five in one term alone. Judge Easterbrook then joined the faculty of his alma mater, the University of Chicago Law School, and began teaching in 1979, quickly rising in the ranks to full professor and becoming the Lee and Brenna Freeman Professor of Law in 1984. Though he was confirmed as a federal judge the following year, Judge Easterbrook stayed true to his calling as an educator and continued to teach law courses at the University of Chicago. For numerous years after his appointment to the Court of Appeal, he taught as many as two to three courses a year while also a full-time judge, and these courses were considered must-haves by students at the University of Chicago. He remains on the faculty today. It is difficult to do justice to the quality and distinction of Judge Easterbrook's scholarship in the short time we have. A cogent thinker and exquisite writer, Judge Easterbrook has published over 125 journal articles and 30 book contributions. He is a member of the American Law Institute and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Judge Easterbrook is not only prolific, he is extraordinarily influential. His 1991 book with Daniel Fischel, The Economic Structure of Corporate Law, essentially redefined the field of corporate law. It has been described as, quote, arguably the most important and most readable corporate law book ever. 
close quote. Similarly, his article also co-authored with Daniel Fischel, The Proper Role of a Target's Management in Responding to a Tender Offer, published in 1981, is high on the list of the most cited law review articles of all time. Within the fields of antitrust and corporate and securities law, he has three articles that are among the 10 most frequently cited of all time in their fields. The Limits of Antitrust from 1981, the previously mentioned proper role of a target's management in responding to a tender offer, and corporate control transactions from 1982. Most full-time law professors who are not also full-time federal judges would consider it quite the coup to write anything even as half as widely read as a single one of the things I just mentioned. Judge Easterbrook's sustained, repeated, and varied scholarly interventions are, quite simply, phenomenal. As a judge, Judge Easterbrook's opinions have been equally influential. With surgical precision, he, quote, cuts to the heart of an issue with skill and pressure, close quote, using, as Supreme Court Justice and former UVA law faculty member Antonin Scalia described, quote, clear and trenchant, close quote, writing. Justice John Paul Stevens, before whom Judge Easterbrook argued cases as a newly minted attorney, remarked on his, quote, characteristic brilliance as a circuit court judge. Said Saul Levmore, former dean of the University of Chicago Law School and also a former law professor here, quote, course after course, sorry, course after law school course has changed for the better as Judge Easterbrook's opinions have made their way into the curriculum. And I'm sure the students in the audience will agree. As both a judge and a scholar, Judge Easterbrook's work crosses boundaries, bringing the insights of economics to legal thinking in a way that advances both fields and in both the academy and the real world of law and business. Judge Easterbrook's brilliance adheres in his ability to marry his keen understanding and analysis with an all-too-rare ability to write so as others might truly understand. Note, again, the description of the economic structure of corporate law as a readable corporate law book. Judge Easterbrook's mastery of the written word, a skill as dear to us lawyers as our ability to reason, is both inspiring and exacting. Judge Easterbrook is so well known for his clear-cut, straightforward writing style that two years ago, when he was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by Scribes, the American Society for Legal Writers, the host of the event played a game with the audience. The host gave examples of overly wordy, long-winded phrases and tasked the audience with rewriting them in Judge Easterbrook's style. Don't worry. I won't ask anyone here to do that today, but it is a worthy challenge and one to which we should all aspire each time we take up our pens. Please join me in welcoming Judge Easterbrook, his wife Barbara, his brother Greg, to Charlottesville and to the University of Virginia Law School, Judge Frank Easterbrook, the 2018 Thomas Jefferson Medalist in Law. Thank you so much. I, I trust that all of you at the University of Virginia have received ample lessons in how to discount overly enthusiastic introductions. <laughs> so I'll, I'll be happy if 10% of that is true, and you may have a chance to discover for yourselves which 10%. I'm delighted to be back in Charlottesville and at this great law school. Way back in 1984, Dan Fischel and I delivered here a paper about mandatory disclosure in securities law as part of a conference uh, on the 50th anniversary of the SEC. 
And not so long ago, I gave another business law talk at the 75th anniversary conference. So I thought it appropriate to return to business law on the occasion uh, of receiving the Thomas Jefferson Medal. Maybe I'll get another chance at the SEC's 100th anniversary conference in 2034. For the last few years, a theme in press coverage of the Supreme Court has been that the justices have become more favorable to business interests. And the undertone is that they've become too favorable to business interests. These stories, which are echoed in law reviews, led my colleagues Lee Epstein, Bill Landis, and Dick Posner to do an empirical study. I'm going to call it the Epstein study from now on. They started with databases maintained by political scientists and made some adjustments. Actually, they made a lot of adjustments, having found that something like 79% of the cases they looked at carefully had been misclassified in one or more ways. Uh, they're, they're usually classified by undergraduates. That's how you do big data these days. Uh, the Epstein uh, group then asked two kinds of questions. Whether businesses won or lost their cases in the Supreme Court, and whether the results were liberal or conservative. They asked those questions for the court as a whole, and for each justice in a sample of cases from 1946 through 2012. They defined a result as liberal when consumers, employer, employees, or government beat corporations, or when small corporations beat large ones. That isn't necessarily a good representation of the political or ideological spectrum they acknowledged, but they needed to simplify in order to process large quantities of data. They found that the success of business litigants fell during the Warren Court but has climbed since then and is higher today than the historical average. They also found that sitting justices vote more often for business interests than their predecessors, and that even the most liberal of today's justices vote for business litigants more often than moderate justices in the 1940s and 1950s. While Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito are the most pro-business in the whole sample, and they found that after the appointment of Roberts and Alito, other justices, particularly Justices Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas, became more likely to vote for business interests. Now that last finding ought to raise some eyebrows. No one else has accused Justice Scalia of being a weak-minded sort who could easily be manipulated by his colleagues. Surely he learned better than that while he was a faculty member here. Perhaps something is lurking behind the scenes. One possibility is selection effects. The court's docket is discretionary. The justices take the cases that interest them. And historically, they've reversed about 70% of the cases they decide to hear. If they become more interested in business cases compared with, say, search and seizure cases, and at least for me, that sounds like a, certainly a good thing to do, uh, then the rate of grants in business cases relative to other things goes up. And as the grant rate goes up, uh, the reversal rate in business cases goes up. So if business litigants are persuading the Supreme Court to grant review more often, their success rate is bound to rise. It just goes with the territory. And there can be no doubt 
that the justices now sitting on the court are interested in business law. Justice Scalia, who was on the court for a large part of the empirical study that, that I'm going to talk about, taught antitrust and administrative law at both Virginia and Chicago. Justice Breyer taught antitrust and copyright law at Harvard and was one of the architects of airline deregulation in the 1970s. Justice Kagan taught labor law at both Chicago and Harvard. Chief Justice Roberts practiced business law. So did Justices Kennedy and Gorsuch. Four votes get you a grant of certiorari, and this mix of interests has made it more likely that the four votes will be there. Justice Ginsburg also turns out to be a big supporter of hearing business cases, not necessarily because she's interested in business law, but because business litigation often comes with wonderful procedural issues that are missing in criminal law or civil liberties law. Justice Ginsburg is a procedural maven, having been, among other things, the reporter for the American Law Institute's second restatement of judgments. You all know that? I'll telegraph now one of the findings about my own empirical research. About a third of the Supreme Court's modern business cases present procedural rather than substantive issues. That is, they present issues about the conduct of litigation rather than who wins in the end or rather than which set of substantive entitlements prevails. Procedural questions engage the interest of all of today's justices. So we get more grants of petitions filed by businesses, and that means more reversals. The Epstein paper found as few as 10 business cases in some terms. But I counted 40 business cases for the 2013 term, more than half of the court's docket, and 27 to 35 business cases in other recent terms. Given the 70% reversal rate, business wins more often. Before I say more about my own research, I want to cover a few additional problems with collecting and analyzing decades worth of cases at a time, which necessarily entails simplifying assumptions so that your computer can crunch the numbers. One assumption is that the identity of the first named litigant in the caption identifies what makes a business case. So if the caption reads Smith Corporation and Jones versus Green, the Epstein paper calls it a business case. If the caption is Jones and Smith Corp against Green, uh, the Epstein paper calls it not a business case. Similarly, that study ignores litigants that serve as proxies for businesses. If the litigant is a general partner of a business trust or the trustee of a bankruptcy trust, uh, the Epstein paper treats it as not a business case. Uh, similarly, if the trustee, if the litigant is a trustee in bankruptcy, uh, they concede that their sample misses maybe 20% of all, case, all business cases important enough for the Chamber of Commerce to file an amicus brief. Uh, and it may miss even more. In the study I'll come to shortly, I've classified suits as business cases no matter what order the litigants are in and whether or not the business was represented by a proxy. A second assumption of, the, of a big data study uh, is that all business cases weigh the same, that they're equally important. 
So if the Supreme Court holds on a Monday that the EPA has the power to regulate emissions of carbon dioxide, a decision that may cost businesses trillions of dollars, then holds on Tuesday that the standard of appellate review of some issue is abuse of discretion rather than clear error, a decision with no apparent monetary effect on anyone, and holds on Wednesday that the statute of limitations for some category of business cases is two years rather than three, the Epstein paper calls this two wins for business and one loss. In fact, it was a calamitous week for business. Only a qualitative study can reveal what's actually going on. It's also important to distinguish between doctrine shifting and doctrine maintaining decisions. What if it turns out that many business cases in the Supreme Court do nothing but maintain established doctrine, rejecting efforts by, well, entrepreneurial appellate judges like me uh, to make some change in the field, uh, while otherwise not doing anything except keeping the judges of the Court of Appeals in line? Uh, if, if that's what's going on, and if the real change might be some changes by the justices in an anti-business direction, just counting heads is not, not going to help. It really takes a qualitative injury, uh, inquiry, sorry, uh, to figure out what's going on. Uh, and of course, finally, there, there's a background assumption that business is a distinctive unit of analysis. In some categories of litigation, that's sensible. A judicial decision rejecting an antitrust claim may allow entrepreneurs to exploit consumers. But in other cases, businesses can't make abnormal profits no matter what the court does for Adam Smith's reason. Competition among firms operates as an invisible hand to pass the gains back to consumers. Or maybe it passes gains to investors, many of which are like the endowment of the University of Virginia and many of which are controlled effectively by pension trusts for the benefit of workers. So I set out to conduct a qualitative review of business litigation in the Supreme Court. 34 years ago, uh, I published an article evaluating the Supreme Court's business cases by sampling the whole docket once a decade for 40 years. I developed three criteria for assessing the court's performance, asking not who won a particular case, but whether the court adequately understood three principles. First, that to evaluate the operation of markets, one looks at how things change on the margin, not at average costs or average benefits. Second, that to assess effects, one has to look at their effects ex ante, and not at just who gained or lost ex post. Third, one must understand that statutes affecting business are the result of interest group politics, and that treating them as public interest laws may be a blunder. What we want is not more of whatever direction a statute points in, uh, but an honest application of the deal that was struck in the legislature. I concluded in 1984 that the court was improving its performance along these dimensions. If it is still better in 2018, and that means more wins for business, there's no cause for worry. But if business victories are coming from backtracking, we should be concerned. 
understand what the court is doing today, I've read every decision starting with October term 2012, which is where the Epstein sample stopped. As I've mentioned, I found 20 or 7 or more business decisions per term, a larger number, much larger number than Epstein, because my criteria are more inclusive. I counted how often businesses win these cases. When businesses were on both sides, I counted a business win if the larger firm prevailed. If I couldn't tell which firm was larger, I put this in an unclassifiable pile. I counted how often the decision was politically liberal and how often it was politically conservative. Where politically liberal usually means a victory for consumers, borrowers, employees, investors, government agencies, or the editorial page of the New York Times. <laughs> I asked whether the decision was procedural or substantive. Procedural decisions have wide application to non-business cases, while substantive decisions may affect businesses differentially. I also counted how each justice votes in each case so that I could evaluate whether there is a pro-business block or an anti-business block. And I looked at the overall lineup too, separating nine to nothing cases from five to four cases and everything in between to see whether the court uh, seems divided in the same way that political bodies are divided. The usual assumption in the political science literature is that justices vote the agendas of the president who appointed them. The data I've gathered allow an informal test of that hypothesis, although only over five years and one category of cases. Finally, I assessed whether a decision was a major win for business, a major loss, or an exercise in stability in which the court just reigns in maverick judges in other tribunals. I put procedural disputes in the stable category because they're unlikely to have long-term economic effects. Here's what I found. I hope you will bear with me uh, as I give you some numbers. I have not prepared slides. I think people actually concentrate better if there isn't anything to look at on the, on the screen. The written version of this talk includes an appendix with all the cases and the reasons why I classified each one as I did. Now, I'm going to talk about a few of the individual cases to illustrate the analysis, but I want to start with a few numbers. And I also want to repeat a caution that should be implicit in everything I've said. This exercise is subjective. The Epstein study was as objective as the authors could make it. I've explained some of the shortcomings of that approach. My study, by contrast, may reflect my own preconceptions and shortcomings. The appendix will enable others to check up on my classifications and make their own decisions. But for now, you should apply a discount. I don't know any way around that, since my goal was to bypass the deficiencies of more objective, big data studies. I'm doing a subjective, small data study. One finding is that less than a third of all business cases are about economic issues. A substantial fraction are procedural. They deal with whether a decision is appealable or what standard of review a court of appeals should apply or in which forum the case can proceed or whether a particular issue is for a judge rather than a jury. 
These decisions involve businesses only in the sense that the issues arose in case with business litigants, but they have nothing to do with whether the court prefers business interests over those of employees or consumers. And a lot of the disputes I treat as substantive have large procedural components, such as who gets attorney's fees or how long people have to file suit. More than a third of the business cases can't be classified on a liberal conservative scale. And in about 20% of the cases, it isn't even possible to decide whether a business won or lost. Uh, so we, there's a large amount of winnowing out from this sample right from the beginning. A second finding, and perhaps the one you will think most surprising, is that most business cases are decided without dissent, and that is nine to nothing or eight to nothing after the death of Justice Scalia. Of the 166 cases I classified as business decisions, 98 were unanimous. That's almost 60%, much higher than the unanimity figure for other kinds of cases. Another 11 decisions had only one dissent, so about 65% of all business cases led to a consensus on the Supreme Court. Lopsided decisions like these can't be chalked up to politics or ideology. The court has five justices appointed by Republican presidents and four appointed by Democratic presidents, but they agree routinely, and they agree on substantive issues as well as procedural ones. Of the non-unanimous decisions, 11 had a single dissent, 19 had two dissents, 21 had three dissents, and just 17 were decided five to four. It's 10% were decided five to four. Some of those five to four decisions have the split that newspapers label ideological, with Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito on one side, and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan on the other. Although one had a majority of Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, and Sotomayor. Think about that for a second. And others have had most unusual combinations. Other splits also may surprise people. As I said, there were 21 decisions by six to three votes. Here are some groups of the dissenters. In case number one, a business victory, Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito dissented from a business victory. In case number two, a business loss, the same three judges dissented. In case number three, it's a business loss from which Kennedy, Thomas, and Sotomayor dissented. In case number four, we have a business loss from which Roberts, Kennedy, and Kagan jointly dissented. Uh, in case number five, a business victory from which Roberts, Ginsburg, and Thomas dissented. These groupings are not what political scientists or editorial pages predict. And the dissenters don't seem to play favorites. Uh, in this listing, Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito voted together once in a pro-business dissent and once in an anti-business dissent. Let me turn now to the outcomes. I counted a business win in 80 of the cases, a loss in 55 of the cases, and couldn't classify 28. In other words, business won 59% of the time when the outcome could be classified. 
although only 48% of the whole sample. By contrast, the Epstein study found that businesses won about 40% of the cases in their sample. So business appears to be more successful today than in the past, but recent outcomes are far from lopsided. Political scientists and the press usually want to evaluate liberal versus conservative outcomes. Now, that assumes a single dimension of analysis. The world is more complex than just left and right, but let's put that to one side for now. I'll treat a decision as liberal if consumers, employees, investors, or the government prevail over a business, or if smaller businesses win over a larger one. I also classify a case on a liberal conservative line if it has obvious political salience, uh, taking account what political parties and the editorial pages are saying. So what has happened in the past five and a half years? I counted 61 liberal decisions, 65 conservative decisions, and the rest not classifiable. Are you all still in your chairs? You all know that the Supreme Court is conservative, right? But liberal and conservative business decisions are equally likely, and some of the liberal decisions have had major consequences. Here are two examples from environmental litigation. Uh, in a case called uh, EPA against EME Homer City Generation, the court held that the EPA's understanding of the Clean Air Act's good neighbor provision, which regulates upwind plants in order to limit pollution in downwind areas, was within the agency's discretion. This rule imposes substantial costs on businesses. It's a liberal outcome in any typology. Uh, eight justices participated. Six of them, including Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, voted for the EPA. Only Justices Scalia and Thomas dissented. The other environmental case is Utility Air Regulatory Group against the EPA, which dealt with the agency's regulation of greenhouse gases under a program designed to prevent significant deterioration in parts of the country that are already meeting many of the statutory requirements. Businesses contended that the EPA's approach is unlawful across the board, but the justices upheld most of the agency's regulations in a nine-to-nothing decision written by Justice Scalia. That's a liberal outcome in a major high-stakes case. Turns out I had to break this case into three for my counts because although most of the regulations survived, a few were held invalid by a five to four vote, and two justices wanted to hold invalid those that the court sustained. So we have a nine to nothing, a five to four, and a seven to two split in the same case, but the dominant split was the nine to nothing decision to sustain the regulations that will prove most costly to businesses and one hopes be most beneficial to consumers. Uh, and there we have it, a unanimous liberal decision in a major business case written by Justice Scalia. Suppose we look only at the cases decided nine to nothing. Do we see a different breakdown in liberal versus conservative outcomes? In other words, does the court decide the liberal way only when one or two of the conservatives defects? That's not what I found. 
Of the 98 unanimous decisions, including the dominant nine-to-nothing outcome in utility air group, 33 were liberal, 34 were conservative, and 31 lacked any left-right component. What this tells us is that the court is in substantial agreement across the board, and none of the justices appears to be a reliable friend or reliable opponent of business litigation. Uh, to, to give you a, a sense, I've mentioned two cases. To give you a sense of what these unanimous decisions are doing, I want to give you capsule summaries of four of them. Uh, in Air Wisconsin uh, Airlines against Hoper, an airline fired a pilot who had flunked a checkout in a flight simulator. The pilot became agitated, and the airline reported to a federal agency that the man was potentially unstable and could be dangerous, since many pilots are licensed to carry firearms on board. The ex-pilot sued for defamation and won, but the justices unanimously reversed, ruling that substantially true statements can't be penalized in light of a qualified privilege in the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. I count this as a conservative, pro-business ruling, since an employer prevailed over an employee. But the real winners were not businesses, but members of the flying public, who face less risk from potentially unstable pilots who may still be carrying credentials that let them take guns through security checkpoints. In Clark against Ramaker, a debtor in bankruptcy wanted to exempt from creditors' claims about $300,000 that she had inherited when her mother died. The money had been in her mother's retirement account, and the daughter contended that after the transfer at death, it continued to be a retirement account and thus exempt from creditors' claims even though it had never been stashed away for the daughter's retirement uh, and under federal law could not be treated as a tax-free retirement asset. The opponent was a bankruptcy trustee uh, as a proxy for banks that had lent money to the daughter. The court unanimously held that the money was available to satisfy her debts. I count this as a conservative, pro-business decision because a bank prevailed over a consumer borrower. But again, the real winner was not lenders, or for that matter, even the banking industry, but borrowers in the future. For in competition, borrowers will be able to get money at lower rates of interest when the obligation to repay is stronger. In Fifth Third Bank against Dudenhofer, the opponents were a corporation and its retirement plan on one side and the retirees on the other. The employer had an established an employee stock ownership program, often called an ESOP, that concentrated holdings in its own stock. When the employer's stock market price cratered, retirees sued, contending that the plan's trustees had invested the money imprudently. The business argued, as some courts of appeals had held, that there is a presumption of prudence in investing in the issuer's stock, or even the trustee's decisions are immune from legal challenge. But the court unanimously held that there's no presumption of prudence, because you can look in ERISA until you're blue in the face and you won't find one there. Uh, the trustees can be liable for not making decisions 
in retirees' best interests. I count this as a liberal anti-business decision, and I'm sure you can see why. My final example is a procedural decision that has a political valence. Many state judges are elected, or if appointed, they have to run for retention in regular elections. Businesses perceive that many elected judges are beholden to the plaintiff's bar, which puts up a lot of the money for their campaigns. I'm not vouching for the truth of that belief, but no one doubts the belief's existence. Business interests persuaded Congress to enact the Class Action Fairness Act of 2005, which allows defendants to remove to federal court class actions uh, provided that the class has at least 100 members and the aggregate stakes are at least $5 million. Another provision defines a mass action as any suit in which 100 or more litigants' interests are proposed to be tried jointly. They can be removed even though they're not technically class actions. Well, law sometimes permits a state to sue as the champion of its citizens. Uh, they, these parents' patriae actions, as they're called, uh, have put the interests of everybody in the state on the line, but they have only one plaintiff, the state itself. In Mississippi against AU Optronics Corporation, uh, the court considered the question whether a parent's patriae suit can be moved to federal court under the 2005 Act. Some courts of appeals had held yes, because, they said, the spirit of the Act is to open the federal court to big stakes cases where state judges might have a temptation to be uh, partial. The court unanimously rejected that view, observing that the text of the act speaks of a hundred or more litigants, not a hundred or more persons affected. A parent's patriae suit has one plaintiff, and that, the court said, was that. I classify this as a liberal anti-business decision, right? The decision reflects the view now widely held among the justices and a centerpiece of my 1984 article that laws do not have spirits. They have texts which come about from political compromises. Business won something in 2005 and was entitled to the fruits of its victory, but to no more. The existence of stopping points led to a unanimous liberal outcome in AU Optronics. You know, I, I could go on, but I hope you get the idea. These decisions come out where the enacted text leads, not where voting blocks assemble in a legislature. Sometimes business wins, sometimes it loses, sometimes conservatives like the outcome, sometimes liberals do. But in a court that produces lopsided, you know, unanimous or eight to one decisions in 65% of its business cases, politics must play very little role. Some of you may ask whether the appointment of Justice Gorsuch has changed the picture. Not that I can see. So far in the 2017 term, his first full term, there have been seven business decisions. Six of them are unanimous. Of those seven, business won four and lost three. Of the seven, three were procedural rather than substantive. Of those seven, I classify two as liberal, three as conservative, and two as neither. In other words, the court with Justice Gorsuch looks much like the court that preceded it.
I want to cover two more topics. First, what happens if we attach weights to the cases? Uh, in other words, is it possible that business is winning the major cases while losing the minor ones, or the reverse? Second, how does the court fare on my 1984 criteria? Of this whole set of 166 cases, I've concluded that only six could be classified as major. Business won three and it lost three. I've already mentioned two of the major cases that it lost, EME, Homer Generation, and Utility Air Regulatory Group. And I'll summarize three of the other major cases briefly. One of them was Burwell against Hobby Lobby stores, which posed the question whether the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allowed family-owned businesses some accommodation from a requirement that employees' health coverage include contraceptives. The court said yes by a five to four vote, but added that the accommodation would furnish contraceptive coverage anyway. I call this a major pro-business decision because of its high degree of political visibility and the impassioned rhetoric deployed on both sides. In Halliburton against Erica John Fund, businesses asked the Supreme Court to overrule the fraud on the market doctrine, which makes it fairly easy for investors to bring class actions based on securities fraud. The justices stuck with the doctrine by a vote of six to three. Chief Justice Roberts wrote this major anti-business decision. And finally, in M&G Polymers against Tackett, the court held that employers are free to change retirees' health insurance benefits when ordinary principles of contract law permit this. Courts of appeals had produced a bewildering variety of rules dealing with retirees' health benefits. And my court, sitting on bunk, split three to three to four about how that subject should be handled. But the justices made this major pro-business decision unanimously. As you can see by now, business decisions cover the environment, copyright, securities law, employee income security, and even political fights such as contraception. Businesses lose major decisions about as often as they win. And that's what we would expect to see if the justices are choosing their docket intelligently and picking the cases that are hard for them to decide. We see nine to nothing decisions far more often than we see five to four decisions. We find that unanimity is not confined to trivial cases. And again, that speaks well of the court if we're looking for apolitical decisions. Finally, how do these cases fare under my 1984 criteria? In other words, when business wins, is it winning improperly? My answer, to be short, is that the court does very well indeed. As I've mentioned, the principal reason it's able to produce unanimous or lopsided decisions is that the justices understand that statutes are political compromises. They don't point in some direction and say, oh, go and produce more of that, however much more of that you like. Or they don't, the 1985 Act doesn't say, go minimize the role of state courts in business cases. Instead, the compromise covers how far to go. Interest groups get what they won in the political arena, but no more. Sometimes they won enough for the business, sometimes they didn't, and the court is carrying out those decisions. 
In a world where judges set out to implement what they see as the goals behind statutes, we should expect considerable ideological disagreement because how far to go questions lie at the heart of politics and the divisions in the legislature will be replicated on the bench. But that just isn't how the justices think of statutes these days. It's why Justice Ginsburg can write conservative pro-business decisions, of which my sample has many, while Justice Scalia could write liberal anti-business decisions. Uh, I'm, I'm going to skip over my, my other 1984 criteria. This is, after all, just an oral presentation. Uh, the, the written version has more along these lines. But I do want to point out that my findings of my study differ from political science studies in part because I include unanimous decisions and in part because business cases are largely statutory. Everyone on and off the bench is tugged by beliefs that are properly called political or ideological. Justice Holmes called them our can't-helps. Most judges try to control them. Carl Llewellyn, one of the original judicial realists, concluded that many aspects of the legal system facilitate self-control, leading to much less disagreement uh, than would otherwise be expected. Statutes are another means of control because they create focal points around which judges can converge regardless of their personal beliefs and preferences. Sometimes statutes are vague, but they're less vague than constitutional doctrines such as equal protection and due process. The more content is in legal rules, the less the scope of judicial disagreement, even when justices have substantially different preferences about wise public policy. And so I have found the average number of dissenting opinions in my sample is one, while the average number of dissenting opinions in constitutional cases over the same period is three. Consider the alternative. Suppose we predict that justices vote the party of the president who appointed them. How well does that prediction do? Well, first it implies that all cases will be decided by five to four votes in the conservative direction and in favor of businesses. That's not remotely what happens. A prediction that the court will decide 70% of its cases, the historical average, in favor of the petitioner, or will take the same position as a majority of the courts of appeals in cases granted to resolve a conflict, does far better than a prediction that the justices follow politics. My approach, by contrast, predicts a substantial difference between cases that require the resolution of a dispute about a relatively concrete text and those that entail open-ended constitutional questions. And that's exactly what we see and what we should expect to see if the justices are doing what they can to make legal rather than political decisions. And with that, I'll be happy to accept questions. I have only two caveats. First, I, mean, I can discuss whether the justices are engaged in politics, but I can't discuss politics. And second, I can't discuss any pending litigation in any court. I mean, those are important ethical rules for judges. But other than that, I'm at your disposal. I want to moderate, shall I? Thank you for your presentation, sir. My question concerns your writing ability. 
what would you recommend for this audience in terms of how to pursue developing our own language? I think to develop a better ability to write, you should spend more time reading. And I strongly recommend that you read illegal sources. No, excuse me, let, let me take that back. <laughs> I strongly recommend that you read unlegal sources. Some of the worst legal writing in the world is by, dare I say it, judges and law professors. Uh, it, is, it is stilted. It is full of arcane legalisms. Everybody seems to love uh, abbreviating things with acronyms and initialisms as if word processors were incapable of putting actual words in text. You know, it, it's basically anti-reader. And people in law schools tend to read this and think, since some people are writing like that, I should write like that too. Oh, come on. Go, go read some good novels and, you know, emulate what good writing is. Or go read good politics. I mean, all the liberals in the room should read the Weekly Standard every week. And all the conservatives should read the New Republic. Because what's going on in those pieces is that intelligent authors are trying to cover debatable, complex questions in three or four pages. They're trying to make cogent arguments. Uh, and you can see how, how, what kind of language is used in trying to make those kinds of arguments. That's, that's the way you should be writing. And the other thing I, I will say about this is, my goodness, why don't you just read Strunk and White? When it's 75 pages about good writing, good legal writing is good writing. And Strunk and White is good on that. Just to show you what the problems in the legal profession are, my friend Brian Garner has tried to do for law what Strunk and White did for, for all law. So Strunk and, Strunk and White do the elements of style. Brian Garner has written the elements of legal style. The Strunk and White book is about 80 pages and concludes an ample list of abused and misused words. Garner's book is about 280 pages. The type is smaller. The list of abused and misused words is longer. The list of common mistakes, <laughs> right? But you should all have uh, both Strunk and White and the, the elements of legal style. You should read it. You know, I go back and reread these things every year, and I say, oh my goodness, I am falling into terrible error in the following way. Let me get rid of it. But you, you basically, oh, and one final thing you can do. You need to choose your audience. If you think your audience is a bunch of other people, all of whom use abstruse language, you still don't want to write like that, uh, because they will understand clear language, uh, as well as the abstruse stuff. Uh, but if you think your audience is broader, and that it includes law students, or maybe even editorial page writers, you want to write for non-lawyers. I, I try to write for an audience that I assume is, you know, intelligent high school seniors. And I think that covers most judges, too. As a follow-up to that, who is your favorite non-legal author? Who is my favorite uh, illegal author? Well, uh, it, if, if I were to say something like that, I, I would probably name a science fiction author. 
but unfortunately, science fiction authors are not known for their, their grand writing style. Um, I really do like Saul Bellow, and a lot of people don't, but uh, I'll go with Saul Bellow. Well, as, as I'm sure you know, the Supreme Court has decided that antitrust is really a common law issue. Uh, what, what I find actually quite surprising about antitrust decisions, other than the fact that these days there are almost none, there are very few, uh, is that almost all of the antitrust decisions come down unanimously. And that's a puzzle for me, because for reasons I've given, I would expect more disagreement in antitrust cases than in cases under tax law, for example. Tax law is relatively much more directive than is antitrust law. Why? Well, I think antitrust has stopped being politically salient. We don't find big debates in the legislature these days about antitrust. And I think that the Chicago view of antitrust has largely triumphed. Uh, that is that antitrust is a consumer welfare prescription carried out through microeconomic analysis. There used to be competing schools of antitrust sometimes characterized as the Chicago School, and then there was the Harvard Structure Conduct Performance School, uh, which was represented by Don Turner and Phil Arita. Uh, and when the Arita-Turner antitrust treatise basically threw in the towel and said, we're joining Chicago now, uh, the, the basis of disagreement went away. You, with the exception of one interesting case, which had to do with stare decisis, you could not find a sliver's worth of difference between how Justice Breyer and Justice Scalia dealt with antitrust. I, mean, I, I find that remarkable, but it's a fact of what's happened at the court. Judge, it's uh, extraordinarily encouraging to hear that our court's describing or deciding at least some equanimity in business decisions. Do you think there's a uh, well, I, I said I couldn't talk about politics, and I, you know, that that kind of gets me in the the political direction. I'm happy to talk about what the judges are doing, whether public discourse elsewhere, uh, on or off Twitter, is helpful. I, I'm sorry, could you raise your voice, please? Do, do you consider in your analysis the campaign finance decisions, and can you comment on those at all? Well, I can comment on the campaign finance decisions, but surely you're thinking about the Citizens United decision. Uh, it came down in 2010, which was outside my sample. Uh, and despite what you read about in the, uh, the editorial pages of the New York Times, I count that as a liberal pro-business decision uh, because it protected the New York Times. Uh, it's true, it protected Citizens United, which is a corporation, 
But the argument, which you read oddly in the editorial page of the New York Times, that businesses don't have rights to speak under the First Amendment, I have always found very odd coming from the New York Times Corporation. Uh, if businesses have no rights under the First Amendment, then the New York Times has no rights under the First Amendment, and surely it thinks otherwise. I'm very happy to see that the court sustained the rights of the New York Times, even the right of the New York Times to disagree with the Supreme Court. Please join me in thanking Judge